Well, good morning. It is a great pleasure for my wife and I and our family to uh, be with you, and I'm really not overreacting when, I'm say, when I say that I'm excited, almost giddy like a schoolboy. Um, so I uh, just want to say that it's a great blessing and great honor, and even though we're currently in the transition phase, and we ask for your prayers as we sell our house, continue to pray, rather, I know you have been, and we appreciate that, um, but continue to pray for us as we sell our house there in Greenville and as we transition here um, in Hickson. That being said, uh, I was praying, thinking about what to share this morning, and um, it just so happens that this is the first Sunday of 2015, and so as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, for me, if you're like me, there are many things in life that distract me from what I call the fundamentals of the truth of the gospel. And it's good oftentimes to be reminded about what is the basics of Scripture, what's the basics of the gospel, what does the gospel say uh, to you and me. So I think it's appropriate that we start 2015 being reminded of some of these basics, two in particular. One, the grievousness of our sin, and two, the glory of of God's grace. So if you'll turn with me this morning and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, begin reading with verse 20 and read down through verse 21. It's found on page 966 in the Pew Bible. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the timeless truth of your word and the central role that it plays in our lives. Pray now as we come to the reading of your word that you would be with my feeble lips, enabling me to articulate your word in a way that we can hear and understand. And pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and open our understanding, our hearts, our minds. Help us to understand the word of God and may it be productive and fruitful in our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the mid-1930s, the U.S. Army Corps was looking for another, the next generation of airplanes uh, for their long-range bomber. And they solicited various uh, contractors, various companies that made airplanes and asked them to put together a prototype and to demonstrate that prototype on a particular day. Uh, Boeing produced a plane that would later become known as the Flying Fortress. It was their B-17 Uh, And the stories told that it was different from any plane that preceded it, uh, that it was actually designed to fly five times uh, further, to to fly faster, and to hold uh, twice the number of bombs as any other uh, aircraft, even uh, more than what the Army had requested. And uh, they demonstrated, Boeing demonstrated this plane uh, to the Army Air Corps on a particular day, and uh, on this day, it, it reached, it, it left the tarmac, reached a position of about 300 feet in the air, and then nosedived and imploded in, in, plane, in flames on the tarmac. 
Needless to say, the Army did not enter into a contract uh, with Boeing for this particular plane, but they did purchase a few to use as experimental aircraft carriers or air carriers. Um, and they, they tried them out. They, uh, see, they saw if they could uh, perhaps identify what it was that caused the crash. And what they determined was that it was not something mechanical, but rather it was pilot error. There was a lot of steps that the pilot had to go through in order to get this plane off the ground. And there was one crucial step, that of releasing a locking mechanism on the rudder controls that the pilot failed to do. And because he made that mistake, uh, it cost him, unfortunately, his life. The Army Air Corps did this experimentation. They determined that they could simply solve the problem by coming up with a, a uh, succinct checklist, a pre-flight checklist, which they then passed on to, uh, to the flight, uh, to, to the uh, uh, individuals who flew the plane, and it resulted in the Army purchasing over 13,000 of these units and the, the planes flying a total of 1.8 million miles without another incident. Now, the reason why that I give you this story is because it's something as simple as a rudder release, a, a rudder a locking mechanism that kept the plane from successfully performing the first time around. And oftentimes in our lives as believers, it's not the big things that derail us, but it's the simple things, the simple truths, the fundamentals. It's the things that we know, that we've been taught, that we believe, that we confess, but uh, due to uh, the inconsistencies of life and the vicissitudes of our lives, oftentimes we forget the truth of the gospel and, and fail to grasp uh, some of the fundamental truths of, of Scripture. In many respects, I believe that the Apostle Paul is providing his own pre-flight checklist here in our text. Uh, he's providing basically two truths uh, in, in the passages that we read. One, reminding us of the grievousness of our sin, and two, reminding us of the glory of God's grace. That leads me uh, to the first point. There's three different things I'd like to glean from this passage. They're all three written in the bulletin, so you can follow along and take notes if you would like. Uh, the first point is that sin requires an extraordinary or outside response. This you can see in the first part of, of verse 20. Paul said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative of one country who goes to another country in order to represent the interests of the country of origin. So for Paul to say that he is an ambassador, in fact, uh, he talks about the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted to him as an apostle and the ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted uh, to the church. And he elaborates on this and says that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we represent the kingdom of God uh, in this world, that we represent the kingdom of God to, the, to a fallen uh, generation. And oftentimes, I think, we look at sin and we have a tendency to trivialize it. We have a tendency to think about sin uh, in a way that makes us complacent, not only with uh, sin in general, but also the particular sins of our own lives. And Paul is reminding us that sin is grievous and that it requires an extraordinary response. It's not something that you and I and even the human race in general can address through our most noble efforts. It, it's not something that you and I can uh, erase or that we can somehow hide under the rug or that we can pardon on our own, but rather sin is an offense that keeps us from God and only God can do away with that offense. 
So implied in this ministry of reconciliation is the fact that there is an offended party, one to whom we have to be reconciled, and that offended party, according to the Apostle Paul, is God. What is the offense? It's our sins. It's the fact that you and I uh, sin, that we are born in rebellion, that we are born sinners, and that oftentimes we endeavor to put our interest, in fact, most of the time we endeavor to put our interest above the interests of God and the way that uh, he has instructed us to live in Scripture. And I think this message is timely. I think it's more appropriate as we uh, look around us. It's always been appropriate because it's the timeless gospel. But if we look around us and we see the culture in which we live, how that uh, right is oftentimes uh, redefined as wrong and wrong is redefined as right, and we live in a culture that is increasingly becoming very antagonistic to Christianity, uh, to the biblical values that you and I uh, believe. And if we stand for right as defined by Scripture, oftentimes we are portrayed as being intolerable or uh, as, as being uh, unconscientious to the progress of civilization. But the truth of God's Word remains. The truth remains that regardless of what society does to redefine right and wrong, uh, there is a definition, there is, a, there is sin, sin exists, and it is a direct violation of God and of His holiness and of His law. So the Apostle Paul begins by saying that he is an ambassador of Christ, and he is a representative of the gospel of the kingdom, that he is declaring, that he is proclaiming the good news that Christ has come to redeem, to reconcile us to God. Then he gives this statement. He discloses for us. He leaves it not to the imagination, but he discloses for us what the interest of the kingdom that he represents truly is. He says in verse 20, the second part of the verse, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So we know that sin requires an extraordinary response, an extraordinary uh, outside of us response, reconciling us to God. And we know that the message of reconciliation is one that Paul is sharing here. He is imploring that we be reconciled to God. He gives this imperative of Scripture uh, that we be reconciled to Him. Now, not only does He give the imperative, but in verse 19, He actually gives the indicative, which means that He gives us the means by which we can fulfill this imperative. He says in verse 19 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world unto Himself. So not only was Paul speaking as an agent of God's kingdom, he was speaking uh, through the ministry of reconciliation that we should be reconciled to God, but he also proclaimed the means by which that reconciliation would occur. It's an extraordinary means. It's a means outside of, of, the human, uh, of, of time, of the human endeavors. It is the means of God intervening and invading time and history and becoming one of us. Recently, we celebrated Christmas, which, of course, is a wonderful holiday, and uh, we sing the songs of Emmanuel, God with us. And what Christmas does is it embodies this timeless truth that sin, which requires an extraordinary or outside sacrifice, has been dealt with through an extraordinary means. That Christ became flesh, or as John chapter 1, verse 14 says, that the Word, which was in the beginning with God, which was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the coming of Christ, 
the advent of Christ, if you will, the first coming of Christ, assured to a fallen world that this extraordinary response has been granted, that God has provided a way for us to be reconciled uh, to him through Jesus Christ, our King. Now, I think our tendency is not to reject that because that's, uh, it's not offensive to us. It's not offensive to our, to our nature. It's not offensive to us on a day-to-day basis. Our tendency is to trivialize our need for it, to trivialize our need to be reconciled with God. We have this notion that inadvertently we sort of fall into that all of us are born somewhat innocent and that we, uh, if we live a good life and if we apply ourselves and if we do our part, then God is going to overlook any mistakes and, and grant us forgiveness based on uh, the fact that we deserve it. And that's not what the, the gospel teaches and it's not what Paul is here proclaiming in this text. He says that our sin, which is the offense, and it's offended God. We are the offender. He is the offended one. And the only way that we can be reconciled is if he comes and provides the perfect sacrifice for our sin. So the Apostle Paul ultimately is implying here in the passage, uh, he's reminding the church at Corinth that sin is indeed grievous. And that it's grievous to the point that it makes reconciliation between God and man not possible by any other means other than God himself becoming man and dying for us, Christ himself dying for us on the cross. Jerry Bridges, who wrote Transforming Grace, made this comment about sin, and I believe it wholeheartedly, so I'll read it to you this morning. He says, sin, in the final analysis, is rebellion against the sovereign creator ruler and judge of the universe. It resists the rightful prerogative of a sovereign ruler to command obedience from his subjects. It says to an absolutely holy and righteous God that his moral laws, which are a reflection of his own nature, are not worthy of our wholehearted obedience. Now, whenever we read something like that or we, uh, we, we hear a sermon or, or we read a text about the grievousness of sin. Oftentimes we default to a position, or at least I default to a position where um, I, I, I tend to downplay my sin. In fact, I'll give you an example. Um, I think in our own culture, in our own world in which we live, um, the, at least in, in 21st century American evangelical culture, um, we have a tendency to uh, subscribe our sins as idols of our heart, and that's a, a just description of them. They truly are idols in the sense that anything that demands worship apart from God is an idol. But in my own life, I find myself leaning towards referring to sin in my life as an idol of the heart because it somehow feels less heinous. It somehow feels less grievous. It somehow feels more safe in order to call it an idol instead of addressing it as outright rebellion against a sovereign and holy God. And I think that's a tendency that we have as believers. And it's something that at the beginning of this year, and and just as for the church there in Corinth, we need to let the gospel communicate to us that sin is grievous. Sin is a violation of the law of God, and it causes an offense, and it requires a sacrifice. I think we see this so beautifully portrayed in the uh, children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you remember the story of Edmund, I don't know if you read the book, but I hope you did, but I hope you have. 
Um, but in the story of Edmund, when in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund uh, goes to Narnia for the second time, actually, and he in- encounters the White Witch, um, it seems such a small act that he commits. He simply betrays his brother, his sisters, and it seems like a small act. After all, he's not successful at delivering them to the White Witch. He simply tells the White Witch that they came and that they're there in Narnia. And then he realizes, I think he knew even at the time that he was doing that, that he was doing something that was wrong. And shortly after, when the true character of the White Witch is disclosed, he realizes uh, the heinousness of his crime. But if you're like me, the first time that you read the story, I, I, I gasped at the level of justice that was demanded. And if you've read the story or you've watched the movie, you know that um, the life of Edmund was required because of that seemingly small incident, that trivial act of betrayal. He wasn't even successful at betraying his siblings, but just the act itself or the intention of betrayal was enough that would demand his life. And I think C.S. Lewis there is painting a beautiful portrait of the gospel And he's disclosing to us the fact that if you go back to the Garden of Eden, it wasn't a murder to begin with, at least not a human murder that was the first sin. It was the simple sin of disobedience, of eating a forbidden fruit, of touching that which God said not to touch, of violating the law of God, of disobedience. And this is where sin ultimately always originates. And oftentimes in our own lives, We get tripped up, not because of the big things or things that you and I in our own way of thinking would define as big, but we get tripped up over those small things, the pet sins, if you will, because we have somehow convinced ourselves that they are less heinous than what they truly are. But I believe that what the Apostle Paul is, is teaching us here in the text is that, number one, sin is an offense that requires an extraordinary sacrifice, and number two, that sin requires a perfect sacrifice. And this gives us more detail, more implication of the seriousness of sin. He says in the first part of verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, the the one who has been offended became, took on our offense, took on the offense of the offender. The offended party who rightly has the right to demand of us justice, to demand of us our life, this offended party instead took on us, took on himself our offense. And that's what we see in the first part of verse 21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's how heinous our sin is. It's so heinous that it requires a perfect sacrifice. Christ did did not sin. Christ knew no sin. He was born perfect. He's the only man that's ever lived on this planet that has been perfect, that's been without sin. He was tempted, yet he was without sin. So he did not deserve death. He did not deserve judgment on the cross. He did not deserve even the momentary deprivation of God's presence when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in that moment of time, he bore on himself something that you and I not only justly deserve, but ultimately, apart from him, will lead us to eternal damnation. And that is the very deprivation of God's presence. He bore at that time the penalty of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
Sin requires a perfect sacrifice. If you look in the Old Testament, you see how that even in the law that God gave to ancient Israel, he required of them to bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering for their sin. And it had to be a male without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. It was, had to be perfect. And if it was not perfect, it was unacceptable as an offering to God. Well, according to Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So that was simply a, a foreshadow of Christ himself, the perfect lamb, the truly perfect one who would come and be our propitiation, be the means by which you and I can be reconciled to an offended God. He was the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb. That's why in Revelation chapter 4, he's referred to as the lamb without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, the lamb slain for you and I, for the sin of the whole world. So sin requires a perfect sacrifice. This is the means of the imperative that Paul provides at the end of verse 20 when he says, be reconciled to God. We cannot be reconciled on our own. Regardless of how good your intentions, regardless of how noble your efforts, regardless of how well that you think, you, you and I think we keep the commandments of God, the reality is none of that can even budge the, the act or the process of reconciling us to an offended God. The only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can be reconciled is through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is here reminding us of something that ultimately is fundamental. Ultimately, it's something that you and I know that we believe as Christians, that we believe, but I believe we have to remind ourselves daily. And it is appropriate to do so going into a new year, to remind ourselves of the grievousness of our sin and of our need for God's unfailing grace. Sin is more than simply missing the mark. It's an outright rebellion against our king. It's an outright declaration that we feel like that we should be in control. A casting off of his rule, a casting off of his leadership. If we're not convinced that we're all traitors deserving of death, then we have a truncated view of grace that will relentlessly seek to add something to it in order to find acceptance in the sight of a holy God. If we are not convinced of the grievousness of our sin, of how heinous our sin truly is, then we have a view of grace that ultimately will lead us to try harder and harder, but ultimately to no avail, to find pleasure or to find acceptance in the sight of God. The only way that you and I can be free from sin, the only way that we can be reconciled to an offended God is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. This leads me to the third point that I believe the Apostle Paul is making in this text, and it's something that theologians call the great transfer, because he doesn't leave us there with that declaration that he has been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation, that we have a need to be reconciled, that we have offended a holy God, that God, the offender, has provided the means of reconciling us to him through his Son. He doesn't leave us there. Because that would only be a half gospel. Instead, he continues by saying that something took place on the cross which defies our ability to, to understand fully. It defies our ability to, to stand in the, the presence of this declaration and lay claim to any right that you and I feel we have 
to the righteousness which is offered in Christ. It's what Luther called double imputation or the great transfer. And so we look at the cross and we see that two things happen. One, our sin is transferred to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And two, something glorious happened. Look at it in the end of verse 21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin was transferred to Christ and his righteousness was declared over us. His righteousness was assigned to us. So that when we stand in the presence of God, we stand justified not by anything that we have done or any merit that we bring to the table, but we stand justified because of the righteousness of Christ and his finished work on our behalf on the cross. This great transfer, I think, is so adequately disclosed in the the hymn, Rock of Ages, when the third verse says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. I believe that we fully, we cannot fully understand the glory of grace unless we also appreciate the grievousness of sin. And we see both in the cross. In the cross where the offender and the offended are reconciled. Where God has assigned our sin and the penalty thereof to Christ and the righteousness of Christ to us. Now, the fundamental point that I want to make is that righteousness is not ours. It belongs to Christ. We cannot lay claim to it as our own no more than somebody who has a deficit in their bank account and I was describing the act of justification to, um, to someone that I worked with, and I gave this analogy. I said, picture, for instance, that you have a deficit in your bank account of some large number, 500 million, and it's beyond anything that you in your lifetime will ever be able to, number one, make up, and number two, accumulate some type of balance in your account. And then picture that some wealthy businessman whom you don't know and Again, this is an analogy, so at some point it will break down. But picture that some wealthy businessman whom you don't know makes a transfer of $10 billion from his account into your own. Now, you would no more lay claim to that money as your own as something that you deserved because you would understand that it's not yours, not a penny of it, but rather it has been transferred from the account of someone else to you. And so in this act of justification, in this act of double imputation, if you will, what we see happening, the transaction that's taking place on the cross is our deficit, our sin, our offenses transferred to Christ, and he pays the debt in full, and he assigns his righteousness to us. This is why if we truly understand grace, we know that we can do nothing to ever make God love us more, and nothing to ever make him love us less. If we truly understand grace, we know that we can do nothing to add to it and nothing to take away from it because it is all sufficient. It covers our sin and it enables us to have access to the very righteousness of Christ. So the righteousness that the Apostle Paul is here referring to is not our righteousness. It is what 
theologians call an alien righteousness, which means that in every sense of the word, it is beyond this world. It is beyond anything that a human race can create, can duplicate, or can come up with, because it is the righteousness of Christ that is assigned to us. In Him, in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. So, if we want to develop an appreciation for these two fundamentals of the gospel, both the grievousness of our sin as well as the glory of grace, where do we start? Where do we look to? We look to the cross because both are so beautifully displayed. Where God in Christ is revealing to the world the seriousness of sin in the death of the Savior and where reconciliation, true reconciliation, is occurring to where you and I become righteous, not with our own righteousness, but with the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we stand justified in the eyes of God because when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. My sins and their just compensation are transferred to Him, to Christ, and His righteousness is assigned to me. The offended party is satisfied and the offender is reconciled. The offense is done away and reconciliation, true reconciliation, occurs. Because the judgment that you and I rightly deserve, Christ becomes the object of. And the affection and the mercy and the grace that you and I long for but do not need, do not deserve, we become the object of. The cross declares to us and it declares to the entire world that there is only one way of being reconciled to God and that is through Christ. There is only one way of living a righteous life and that is through the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness which is imputed, righteousness which you and I do not properly deserve because if we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. But grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God, a God of love, who has provided a means for the offense to be dealt with, the debt to be paid, and a positive balance to be assigned to our account. Now, what attitude should this create in the mind of a believer? It should create an attitude of humility, an attitude of thankfulness, because we know that none of our salvation belongs to us. That, it, that it's not something that we contribute to, but it's all of grace from beginning to end. It is a gift of God. Even the ability to believe that we are sinners, even the capacity to understand the grievousness of sin is not something that you and I possess in our intellectual ability or, or on our own. The only way that we can be aware of our need for a Savior, the only way that we can be aware of the grievousness of our sin is that the intervening work of the Holy Spirit resurrects our dead heart and helps us to see our need for a Savior. The only way that we can believe that we're terminally ill in need of healing is by looking at the cross because the cross declares to the world that reconciliation need occur and that that reconciliation has occurred through Christ and his sacrifice. So as we think about 2015, as we 
look forward to the year ahead. My prayer for me and for you, for us as a body of believers as well as individually, is that we would keep before us at all times these two golden truths of the gospel. That our sin, yes, is dark, yes, is grievous. And that we would pray and long for an awareness to be awakened within our heart of how grievous our sin really is. That we would not trivialize it like our tendency is to do. And secondly, that we would understand the glory of grace. Grace unmeasured, grace so free that enables you and I to walk in the righteousness of Christ. That enables you and I to be reconciled to an offended God. I believe this can be our pre-flight checklist as we think about 2015 and beyond. And I would hope that it's our prayer that God would create within us this awareness and this appreciation for the grievousness of, of our sin and the glory of His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for the truth of the gospel that is timeless that oftentimes we need to be reminded of these golden truths, these, the reality, Lord, that our sin is grievous. Lord, create within us by your Holy Spirit that awareness of how grievous our sin truly is. But also create within us an appreciation for your grace, knowing that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And Lord, you, through the death of Christ our King, have borne our offense, so that we might bear your righteousness. Keep this, Lord, before us at all times. May it develop us. May we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.